The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. My name is Dave Goldberg, and I am your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and to uh, follow this show uh, on, on Twitter, uh, use hashtag uh, BigBeaconRadio to, um, to pick up the tweets about, about the show today. And today, we're really uh, lucky... Um, to be joined by uh, a person of many talents and, and many scholarly interests, but we're here to talk about organizations, culture, and higher education, and we've got maybe Mr. Organizational Culture with us. We've got uh, Edgar Schein of uh, MIT and uh, now living on the West Coast. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, and... and um, and, uh, you know, higher education is being disrupted, and there are calls for change inside and outside the academy. The university has a long history and a distinctive culture, but, but many, um, many frame change is a simple matter of changing content, uh, uh, curriculum, and pedagogy. Uh, what are your thoughts about change in higher education? Well, that's a good lead-in to my background, because I started in a very traditional way, University of Chicago General Education, Stanford Psychology, becoming an experimental social psychologist, Harvard uh, PhD with emphasis on sociology and anthropology as well. But it was under the auspices of the Army, so I had to serve four years uh, as a uh, postdoc at Walter Reed Institute of Research. And my self-image was completely as a general uh, social experimental psychologist, and then fate intervened. Uh, I was in the Army, and I was recruited to be one of one of a number of panels that was sent to Korea to help debrief the POWs who had been held by the Chinese communists and who had allegedly been what was then called brainwashed. And so I found myself plunged into the world of reality and given an unusual opportunity to talk to people about real influence instead of studying it experimentally. Then when I came to MIT a few years later, I had a 
similar experience of uh, deciding to come to business school, and in the business school, uh, they're not interested in experimental results. They want to know, what do I do with them? So I found myself um, with some consulting and some workshops and human relations at Bethel being pulled into the world of reality, and that world of reality is full of different kinds of cultural forces that fortunately I was able to deal with because I'd had enough anthropology and sociology. So that's that's the long-winded way of how I got the culture. Well, you know, and that's a, that's a beautiful story, and I, I mean, it comes from difficult circumstances in the Korean War and and uh, and these POWs and the and the brainwashing and and otherwise. But in many ways, you're a scholar. Scholar, you've you, you've done so many things in in so many different areas. And on this show, we're interested in what we call unleashing experiences, where people. Uh, uh, unleash themselves to a life of authentic work that's really about who they are and and you seem unleashed uh, in so many different ways and you've mentioned a number of these experiences but were were there other key experiences or individuals in your background that kind of led you to the the kind of <clears throat> wide-ranging career that you've had well i think there there are certainly three people that come to mind one was the famous social psychologist kurt lewin who was at MIT at the time that I was at Harvard, and so I had a chance to not meet him personally, but get the impact of his work. And he he is known for two very quick uh, mantras. You don't really understand an organization until you try to change it. And secondly, there is nothing so practical as a good theory. Now, the, where this all came together was when my second mentor person, Douglas McGregor, who was a researcher on leadership and came up with this very well-known theory, X theory, Y model yes. of whether we're cynical or idealistic about people, and sent me to Bethel to go through a human relations training lab. That lab introduced me to what is today taken for granted as experiential learning. Mm. So we would be in something called a T-group for training. The trainer would say, we're all here to learn from our own experience, and then would shut up. And we would say, yeah, okay, how do we do that? And he would say, well, that's up to us, isn't it? (laughs) That really turned me around. Initially, I was very hostile to the whole idea, but when I saw what happens in the group and how the phenomena in the group, when they're spontaneous and just turned on by us, mirror what I knew theoretically and from research, that was really very exciting. So I became for 10, 15 years a very enthusiastic human relations trainer in this what's now called sensitivity training. Yes. And found myself really becoming a proponent of experiential learning, that that's the best kind of learning. You have to have an experience and then analyze the experience to really learn some new skills and new ways of looking at the world. 
Yeah, we think, and you know, people today we're trying, we're struggling today to bring about change in higher ed, and and we think of these things as new. But you're right. I mean, these things go back to to Dewey, and and uh, and and then the the humanistic psychologist Carl Rogers and Maslow, and 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 exactly. organizational theorists like Douglas McGregor, and we think of all this stuff as new, but it's been around for a heck of a long time. It was really invented as a as an aspect of working differently in organizations. Yes. I think Dewey had it already in the classroom, but we didn't bring it into organizations until the 1950s. And the big proponent then was Kurt Lewin. And then I, the third person who influenced me greatly was a brilliant full-time consultant who was a part-time teacher at MIT by the name of Richard Beckhardt who invited me along on some of his consulting projects with organizations. And I learned from that the real power of experiential learning. So, for example, instead of lecturing an organization about how to do changes, he said, let's have sets of managers become change teams, get briefed by their organization on what kinds of changes are needed, and have them meet quarterly for three days with us, where in the first quarter we teach them some skills, and then they go into projects, and in the subsequent quarters we have them report on the projects, learn how to help each other, and by the end of the year the organization had changed in a very significant way, but through their own efforts and their own learning. Yeah. And and of course, you know, the, so this is all, you know, to, to modern ears, this sounds like stuff that could have come out of corporate training or, or other kinds of things, you know, yesterday. But we're talking about stuff that w- that was happening in the late 50s, early 60s um, in, in very important ways. Um, I, one of the stories that we tell about you in the book, Whole New Engineer, is your 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 experience in going in and trying to help, um, I guess this uh, uh, is Lewin's remark. So you 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 don't know uh, you re- don't know an organization until you really t- try to change it. You were asked to come into Digital Equipment Corporation and help them, uh, right. and and it was sort of uh, I think it's a pivotal experience in your thinking about culture. But can you say more about that? Well, I think the the best way to get it at how I got to organizational culture <clears throat> was that I was simultaneously working with digital equipment, which was a New England first generation uh, entrepreneurially driven uh, organization, and somewhere in those early years also got recruited to do some work on career development and change with Siba Geigy, mm. which was based in Basel, Switzerland. It had a big U.S. <clears throat> wing, but it was mostly a Swiss-German chemical company. And I would fly there quarterly for three days. And the contrast between working with a bunch of electrical engineers in New England in a startup and working with a bunch of old chemists who had invented some of the world's great drugs or chemicals in Basel, Switzerland, almost sold itself as there is something called organizational culture. 
because I couldn't explain the difference on just nationalism or on the different occupations. There was really something in the way the two companies had been formed and grew and the kind of leadership they had, the technology they were working in that cried out for description and contrast. And that became really the foundation of my books on organizational culture. I always illustrate two different companies, the action company and the multi-company. That was Digital and Sibagagi. And it, it was really the basis for a lot of the theorizing I later did about it. Uh, beautiful stories and and how nice or what an interesting serendipitous occurrence that you've got such a nice contrast in your two exemplars that you were uh, uh, doing consulting with. Let me add a footnote. <clears throat> the best way that I found to decipher culture was really what was happening to me. In digital, I would try to give advice to improve their functioning, and it was consistently rejected. The only way I could help digital was to get into their world and figure out what they try, were trying to do and maybe suggest some processes that might help them do it better. Then I took that, and I wrote about that. I called it process consultation. Yes. Then I would go to see Begaigi and try that, And they were totally impatient. They said, Professor Schein, what is the answer to this particular problem? You're the expert. We want the answer. So the culture was playing itself out in what they wanted from me. Of course, and, and that makes sense when you view it through the lens of culture, but you know through other lens. And and what kinds of things? You know, so the the digital culture was more com- combative and confrontational. What kinds of things were you suggesting to them that were routinely rejected? Well, I was suggesting, for example, that in a meeting where everyone was interrupting each other all the time. That, that this was not only rude, but, you know, was, was not an effective way to run a meeting, to which they <clears throat> always agreed, apologized, but didn't change. And the breakthrough, and where I, in a sense, invented process consultation, was when I kind of gave up, sat back, and said, well, these are bright people, so why are they doing something that strikes me as so stupid? And I began to realize that they were acting in the proper academic and engineering roles of fighting very hard for their ideas. And were very impatient and just couldn't hold back. But they were losing information. So one day the breakthrough was when I went to the flip chart and when person A started to propose an idea, I started to write it down. And, of course, when he was interrupted... I was interrupted in midstream getting the idea on paper. So instead of saying to the interrupter, you know, why don't you wait and let me get this idea down, I turned to the person who had the idea and said, I didn't get all of that. That proved to be the key, that it suddenly reframed for them that the ideas were important. 
and getting the whole idea out was important. Mm. So then they shut up while he gave me the rest of the idea. And from that point on, they began to discipline themselves to not interrupt an idea until it was fully written down. Now, I could have suggested that to them. It would have made no difference. I had to actually show them by being at the board, and here's half an idea written down, and they want to start to talk about something else, how dysfunctional that was. So that's what I mean by I entered their process of idea generating, but showed them a way of doing it that was more constructive. Beautiful, and I, and and I think we need to explore this some more. We're gonna we're gonna take a short break, and uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Edgar Shine. We're talking about organizational culture and uh, transformation of higher education. In the next segment, I, I think we want to continue this discussion and and kind of dig into the whole notion of of uh, uh, talk some more about process consultation and and uh, organizational culture. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3 Joy website www.3joy.com today. Biz Locker Radio is a high-energy business show that features compelling conversations and cutting-edge business content that you can use to improve your performance today. Hosted by Kelly Riggs and presented by the Business Locker Room, Biz Locker Radio features dynamic thought leaders from sales, marketing, leadership, business strategy, social media, and more. If you're in business, you need an edge. Develop that edge with Biz Locker Radio. Tune in every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, and 3 p.m. Central on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information, visit bizlockerradio.com. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. 
1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg. We urge you to get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at www.wholenewengineer.org. And before the break, we were talking with our guest, uh, Ed Schein, and we were talking about uh, his background and how he came to a career in process consulting and and, education. organizational culture. Ed, you, you got your PhD back in 1952. That was the year before I was born. And and a lot has happened since then. You know, the digital computers were just really coming in with tapes and punch cards and things like that. And, uh, you know, back then the IP, IBM PC was more than two decades down the row and the web browser wasn't a gleam in any programmer's eye. We've witnessed a lot of change. Lots happened uh, since then. And, and, yeah. So, to and to what extent uh, is is this thinking current? Has it become more important, less important? Uh, you've seen a lot of stuff uh, go by. What What are your thoughts about the ways in which organizations have been affected by technology and change? Well, the there are two ways of looking at it. One is to <clears throat> to try to describe the change and and evaluate them somehow. This is what older people tend to do, you know, things aren't as great as they used to be kind of attitude. But I found that for some reason, it, it always fascinates me when these changes come in. And I find myself in wonderment at what, what is happening and what will happen next. So for example, the, the computer and the ability for me as a writer, I think of myself primarily as a writer, to be able to produce a, a book in my study from beginning to end and just take, take something that comes off the computer that's been spell-checked, that's been revised to my own taste, to a print shop and come out with a book is really mind-blowing. Uh, and I suppose the social media and, and other aspects of a networked world uh, will strike other people as mind-blowing. Uh, my good friend Otto Scharmer created a, uh, already I think 10 years ago, a kind of a world classroom where I found myself standing in front of a camera at MIT talking to 450 people simultaneously from all over the world. Yes. And recently he has developed a MOOC, a massive, uh, uh, I've forgotten what. Massive open online course. Yeah. And uh, not only did he have taped segments of me introducing various pieces, but they could send in uh, email questions. Those were collected, sent to me as, as attachments to an email. I could think about them, turn on my Skype or Zoom, yep. answer the questions to my satisfaction, and that then goes back out 
to the 500 people in the MOOC. It, it's just astonishing how much better certain aspects of communication are. One time, we realized that the social media are changing relationships, yes. and we may think, well, yeah, the relationships are getting uh, more difficult and problematic, and is that good or bad? And I look at my grandchildren and say, let's just learn from them. Let's not evaluate it. Let's learn from it. That's my attitude. There have been enormous changes. Mostly I appreciate them. They make life easier and more efficient. Uh, and so what's the problem? Well, and, and, and that goes back to your early experience. It seems to go back to your early experiences where you were in judgment and you and you had a number of people that helped you not be in judgment and stand back from these things and, and just understand them. And I think that is a big part of um, some of the transformation that higher ed has to go through. And, and I think we want to, I think we want to hammer that in the, maybe in the last segment, but I, I think your results in, in, in organizational culture are, are really super important for well any organization that's, trying to change and and higher ed in particular so but we throw this term culture around and it gets used and abused what you know what are some of the the ways in which uh as as someone who takes culture very seriously uh some of the ways in which you find the term abused that are problematic for you well yeah i this is a problem for me because when you've taken anthropology courses you understand that culture is what a group, a particular set of people, have developed as their shared learning about how to survive in their environment and how to manage their internal affairs. So when I looked at Digital, which was a startup company growing, I could literally see the culture in formation, the values and and uh, ways of doing things that the entrepreneurs and founders imposed on the organization, if they were successful, began to be taken for granted, and that became the culture. You can think of it as as a skeleton of the organization formed. And that skeleton, the culture, both enables you to grow as the human skeleton enables you to be bigger, And at the same time, the skeleton through teeth and claws and so on enables you to survive in the environment, get food and so on. So culture is the stable, learned part of a group's experience. If we start with that definition and someone comes along in an old company that definitely has a culture already, And this executive says, I'm going to create a culture of service. I know that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because you, first of all, can't create a culture. It can only grow out of learning. And secondly, he already has a culture of service, but evidently it's not doing for him what the business needs. So what he should be saying is, I have a problem with service, and I need to examine my culture 
to see how it is aiding or hindering the service that I want. Or another example that's even better would be I want a culture of teamwork. I'm going to create a teamwork culture, right? Very popular today. Sure. So someone says, I'm going to create a teamwork culture in my sales organization. So if if I have an opportunity to talk to him about it or her, I will say, okay, let's imagine how this might look. And we soon get to the idea that, well, the the team or the salespeople from the different divisions now should go out together as teams and tell a common story to the client system instead of going in separately with their own stories. And I say, fine, are you now going to reward them as a team? And suddenly, the real culture surfaces. He says, well, no, we are on individual incentives. Isn't that how all sales organizations work? Well, and you want to keep individual incentives? Yes. So that is your culture. So can you now create teamwork in a culture that's built on individual incentives? And now the light bulb finally comes on, and he says, well, I guess only if I change the incentive system. I say, okay, shall we do that? And suddenly he may say, well, no, you don't. I don't really think we can do that. I may not even want to do that. So maybe having salespeople go out as teams is not possible in your culture. And then finally we're talking about reality. But we had to work our way through from being the helpful consultant and saying, sure, I've got a bunch of tools. I'll teach you how to be team members, knowing that this can't work if the incentive system, which is well embedded, isn't itself changed. Well, that's a, and those are and those are great examples and 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 so and and you started from an anthropological place about talking about you know how we usually think of uh, nations or tribes and things and then took that to organizational culture are there are there distinctions to make around are there ways in which say organizational culture is different are there ways to refine how we think about culture when it comes to to say uh, business organizations or educational institutions or or, or is it, it it's just uh, yeah. another way of talking about the same thing what what i learned was the advantage of looking at organizations instead of tribes or nations is that you could find how culture starts. We don't really know, except through a lot of historical stuff, how the U.S. culture became what it is. But in digital, I could literally track how from Ken Olson's personal beliefs as the founder, you gradually saw those personal beliefs get embedded and become the culture of Digital Equipment Corporation. So when you then say, well, how did IBM get its culture? Read a few biographies of Tom Watson Sr., and you will see all of what is today's IBM culture embedded in Tom Watson's early beliefs about how an organization should operate. So the positive side is looking at organizations gives you a sense of how cultures form. The problem 
with the concept is if it's a young organization that has a lot of turnover, it may not yet have a culture that's describable. Or if it's a very old organization where the roots are lost, we're in the situation of maybe wanting to change it, but have to realize that in if you wanted to change the IBM culture or the, the culture of the Bell system or whatnot, that would be a, a major, major problem, which would probably require dissolving the group at some level. The group can't change its own culture, but a turnaround manager, or as in the case of the Bell system, the economics can force the, the organization to fractionate and develop around a lot of subcultures, because that's the other thing, of course, we haven't talked about. Every organization has subcultures, groups yes. that develop their own way of working, and every organization now, if we get into healthcare or your engineering, every occupation has a culture. Engineering as a field has a culture that's quite independent of a particular engineering program at a particular university. And we can't ignore the doctors have a certain culture, nurses have a certain culture, engineers have a certain culture, and that may explain a lot of what goes on in the organization. Uh, One of my important papers was to differentiate the culture of the executive suite from the culture of the designers of the organization who really would prefer to design people out of the system because it's people who screw systems up, and the operators who actually run the system who are impatient with the designers because the designers never anticipated all the surprises when things change and the way the design is supposed to work doesn't actually work. So those three cultures in most organizations have to be aligned. The executives who worry about money, the engineers who worry about elegance, and the operators who worry about keeping uh, the place running. They are often in conflict with each other rather than aligned, and that's why companies get into difficulty. Yeah, and so when we're talking about uh, here, we're talking about alignment of uh, different uh, different kinds of people who come with their own cultural assumptions, and 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 then another kind of a, a misalignment that can occur. You have this model of of this, uh, uh, and we've we've just got about a minute or two left, so I don't want to dive into it too deeply. We'll have to pick it up in the next segment. But you've got this model of the artifacts and the spouse values and the deep assumptions, and there can be misalignments in, in those three things too, can't there? Absolutely, and that, that has to do with cultural assessment that we have to talk about. Well, and, and so I think let's, uh, why don't we, t- we'll take a break and come back and, and pick up with uh, that notion of cult- uh, cultural assessment. Um, right. After the break, you've been listening to Big Beacon Radio with special guest Ed Shine, and uh, we'll come back right after the break and talk about cultural assessment and then apply it to uh, what's going on in higher education today.
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Are you ready to be the change you wish to be? Live with passion. On Success Inside, host Aparna will share some of the world's best ideas from today's thought leaders. You'll hear success stories from around the world. Guests include inspiring authors, world leaders, spiritual leaders, and successful entrepreneurs. It's time to live the life of your dreams. Listen for Success Inside, airing live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with uh, your host Dave Goldberg and, and uh, Ed Shine. We're talking about culture and higher education transformation. Uh, get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to help transform higher education at www.3joy.com. Ed, in the last segment, we were just starting to touch on cultural assessment and your three-level model. What can you tell our listeners about those things? Well, the... Once people get interested in culture, they of course want to know, well, if it's, if it's such a complicated concept, how do I get a handle on it? And the easy way to do that is first of all, to become an observer in the culture. So when you enter a new organization, or when you're in a hospital and encounter doctors, or whether you're dealing with an engineer, See what you actually experience in the interaction. So when you would walk into digital, it's an open office space. There's a lot of dynamism. Yesterday, I walked into uh, 
one of the buildings out here in Silicon Valley and you see uh, a certain very informal dress code and uh, uh, all kinds of food everywhere and uh, comfortable chairs. And then I would go think about Sibagaygi, and it was deadly formal. Everything went on behind closed doors. Uh, there were even lights above the offices. If it was green, you were allowed to knock. If it was red, you weren't supposed to, to even knock on the door. person didn't want to be disturbed. All of those things, the look of the place, the smell of it, the feel of it, are the cultural artifacts. And a lot of those won't make any sense. So the, the ethnographer, the anthropologist, has to have informants in the culture. So you're, you're wandering into this new organization. You have to ask somebody, say, why, why are there so many different food stations? Uh, every, every 20 uh, steps, there's another coffee bar. What, what, what is that all about? Or if you're in another organization, why don't I see any food stations or anything that looks comfortable? So the insider will tell you what I'm calling the espoused values. They will tell you, well, we really believe in informality. We think that leads to better work. And we really want people to feel comfortable, and so we give them comfortable furniture and comfortable food. In the other organization, the informant will say, well, we believe that work really gets done by carefully thinking about it. So we want to give people private offices so that they can really sit down and figure out what they're doing. And there may be, in, in either case, a statement of beliefs like there may be uh, in the in the informal organization, also the statement, and, and we're a team organization, so we make it very easy for people get to get together. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I then ask some questions about the processes of the organization, and I know from theory that probably the most important process is the reward process and the incentive process. So I may say, well, how does one get ahead here? Uh, how do you get promoted? And in, in that team organization, they may say, well, you get rated on your potential and on your performance, and if you get good enough ratings, you'll be promoted. I say, well, then how does this work out against the teamwork? Uh, do you get uh, brownie points for being a good team member? Well, no, you're expected to be a good team member, but promotion actually occurs around your individual performance. It's that discrepancy between their claim to be a team group and the reality of how they actually promote that tells you there is something else that's driving the promotion system and that there's an incongruity between their espoused values and the systems and the behavior by which they operate. That means there is a deeper assumption that they all take for granted, 
namely that what really matters here is individual performance. And they may not be aware that that's driving them because they're officially supposed to be a team organization. But the reality is, and if you bring it up, well, doesn't that mean you're basically an individual superstar-type company? They say, well, yeah, I guess that's right. So the underlying assumption is what really drives the culture, but it's sometimes hard for organizations to look at themselves and acknowledge that. To acknowledge that the, the, these deep assumptions exist, the, the and, and even what they are, and even talk about them, is what you're saying. And, for example, in the U.S., the equivalent would be our espoused value is equality of opportunity. But we know very well that the real value that drives most of the processes in the, in the U.S. right now is the Horatio Alger myth that it's all up to the individual. And we, we kind of don't want to look at the fact that if you're a minority in a ghetto, that you can have all the drive in the world, but if the educational system doesn't give you opportunities for it, yes. that in fact uh, you, you can't do anything for yourself. So the, the deeper assumption in the U.S., is is really that it's all up to the individual. Yeah. It's still a very individual-driven organiza- uh, society, society sure. even though we espouse uh, equality of opportunity and, you know, anybody can be president and all sorts of great-sounding espoused values that are not experientially uh, uh, feasible anymore. Mm. Well, and if we carry this over to uh, you know the, some of the show's uh, interests in higher ed, so a lot of schools are saying how student-centered they are. And then there was this wonderful paper in the 50s uh, by Carl Rogers where he wrote down 10 of – tried to come up with some of these hidden assumptions. He wrote down that the student cannot be trusted to pursue his own scientific and professional learning was one of the deep assumptions of, of higher right. education. And it seems like we have – you know, we have a mismatch between some of the happy talk of, of educational transformation and, and some of uh, the, the deeper assumptions there, too. A great example of that is <clears throat> that our deep assumption of individualism is best expressed through our very tough punishments for plagiarism. Mm. And we find sometimes foreign students who hear all the stuff about teamwork will not realize that copying from a teammate will lead them to be thrown out of the school. They say, well, I thought you wanted us to work together. They hear the teamwork espoused value and don't understand that we don't really mean teamwork in the sense of sharing test answers. How how are they to know the difference? Yeah, and 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 so and and we we had now a couple. You had examples uh, in the last segment about kind of mismatches and culture between different actors, and now we're just talking about sort of mismatches in these different 
levels of the culture. So there's all there's all kinds of opportunity misalignment, and right. it seems like that, that that there's a. But we have these organizations. Many of many of the organizations that we have are legacy organizations that uh, started in the 50s or in the early part of uh, the last century, and now they're they're faced with trying to survive in this. Uh, with all the advances that we talked about uh, earlier, and so and so, you know how you know it seems, you know so the culture is a is very powerful force, and yet when we want to make change, we're essentially faced with a with with that culture as as in some sense the object of change, and trying to make sure that we make changes in different parts of the system that are sort of congruous and and make sense, and that that sounds really tough. It, it does require sometimes breaking up the group because the, the skeleton is embedded in, in people's uh, norms and their shared beliefs. So when you see major turnarounds, for example, in, in business organizations, the turnaround manager will generally fire the top two echelons knowing that those two top echelons are the conservators of the old culture. And my hunch is that you couldn't create a new engineering program without really destroying some very treasured norms of the old system. And you'd have to think, how, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, and I think you know some you know some of the so some of the things that we try to borrow and in, in trying to do that we we try to borrow from some of the learning and in, in corporate change from folks like John Cotter and the idea of a dual operating system and trying to split things off to see if you can harmonize the old and 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 the desired new in some in some pilot setting does is that a is is that kind of divide and conquer sort of approach sensible from your perspective? Or I I think of that more as as create a uh, create an experimental unit, uh, not divide and conquer, but rather create what I have called a cultural island okay. in which a group can challenge the old assumptions and start anew. <clears throat> That's what the T group was. The old assumption was the the teacher will tell us what to do. And the way in which Kurt Lewin's student Alex Bavilus broke that, uh, he walked into a class of, uh, of social psychology students at MIT and said, I'm Alex Bavilus. This is a social psychology class. When you figured out what you want to learn, come and see me. My office is down the hall and walked out. And they thought, well, you know, what kind of an experiment is this? They waited him out. He didn't come back. At the second session, he wasn't there. So they finally decided, well, he must have meant it, talked among themselves, figured out what they really did want to learn, and then went and got him. Now, the only way he could break the norm Yes. It's up to the teacher to create the curriculum was by literally not being there. It takes that degree of of upsetting the norm before people ask, well, is it the teacher's job to set the curriculum? You know, mostly we, we never think about it. And therefore we we miss opportunities 
to make changes. So it, it leads us really to the whole theory of how you make change. And Cotter and others are, are very good general stage theories, but culture change requires something much more specific, namely to, to challenge some of the norms and rules and processes by which we have always worked. Somebody has to say, I'm going to send that sales team out and I'm going to give them their salary as a group and let them figure out how to allocate it. Until someone does yeah. that, the old norm will never even be uh, recognized and challenged. Well, and there, yeah, and so there's some sense of challenging some of the 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 big items, and but there's 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 also we've been talking about levels of the culture, but there's also there's the there are levels in the organization from the individual to different structures, and 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 uh, some of your we've got about three minutes left, but some of your work. Uh, um, uh, now is is more at the level of individuals. Uh, your your work on helping and humble inquiry and things like things like that. That um, that this the even even getting in helping individuals to change is a substantial problem. How does that fit into this culture puzzle? Well, it switch individuals. Yeah. I think the individuals that need to be changed are the senior executives because they have the power to challenge the norm, whereas people down in the system have very little power to do that. So this book, Humble Inquiry, that, that I've written, argues that until executives, CEOs, surgeons in the, in the operating room, until the people who have the power change their own behavior from just telling everyone what to do, to beginning to ask questions and saying, how should we do this? Does anyone see a better way? Do you see something that we're doing that's wrong? Until the CEO starts to do that, we're not going to get any culture change. So Humble Inquiry, the, the, the book that really addresses this, then was, is going to be followed up now by a book that's called Humble Consulting. Because what I've discovered is that I, as a consultant, instead of coming in in a low-key way, uh, asking a lot of questions, am often more effective when someone says, I want to change my culture from something to something, that the most effective intervention I can make is to say, why would you want to do that? Challenge immediately the presumption that's operating and people discover that, yeah, you know, I haven't really thought that through. Why that do true. I want to do this? Yeah. So, so Humble people... Consulting says it's got to be fast, and it's got to be from the moment of contact. There's no diagnosis. There's immediate intervention. And that gets the cultural few, issues got a few much faster. Left, Ed. And, and so if people want to get your books, they can get them on, on Amazon. And when will uh, Humble Consulting be up? Humble Consulting will be out next spring. Beautiful, and we'll look but the forward, basis uh, of it is really already in humble inquiry. Great. So we'll look forward to 
to seeing the, your newest contribution, and we're uh, we're grateful that you were able to join us join us on the show. And You've been listening to much. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest Ed Shine. Uh, help transform higher education and join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at www.bigbeacon.org. Join us uh, next week, same time, same channel, uh, in our quest to help transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.